0: I don't know about you, but I find Christmas to be one of the most fun times of the year, and yet one of the most hectic times sometimes too, isn't it? All the things that the world uh, thinks that we should be about and we should be doing, and all the things that we place on ourselves, think that we should be about and we should be doing. You know, we all have family traditions. We all have things that we normally do at Christmas time. Put up the all the decorations. Got your decorations up? Who's got their decorations up? Let's admit it. Yeah, I haven't got all mine up yet myself. Haven't even pulled them out of the attic yet. But there's so many things that we think of in relationship to Christmas, isn't there? So many things that the world wants us to be thinking about also, beyond what maybe we should be. I've been noticing, as I've been reflecting on the beginning of Christmas this season, that My goodness, everybody wants us to think about romance. Have you noticed that? All the Christmas stories that are out there on TV now are romances. Except for one, the greatest romance of the universe between God and man. So this morning, as we begin the Christmas season, I want us to, to begin it with a a perspective of what the greatest romance in the world is. God's love for you and me. Because it cannot compare with all those stories that make us cry when we watch and make us feel good and want to snuggle up to our loved ones. It can't compare, really, when you think of what it was that Christ did. And so we're going to take a look Not so much at the Christmas stories that you always think about and hear about at Christmas time, and that we're going to be talking about over the next couple Sundays also. We're going to be hearing about. But this morning I want to share with you Jesus' story of Christmas. Did you know he had a story of Christmas? Let's pray first and ask for God's blessing on what we hear. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask for your blessing upon this morning. Lord, as you showed your great love for us, may you help us to hear your word. May you help us, God, to believe that word. And may you help us to live that word. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas stories. we got a lot of them in the Bible, no way. If we just turn to what the Bible says, which you're not going to hear too much on TV, we find a lot of different stories, a lot of different biographies, really. People writing about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But a lot of other places in the Bible, too. Not necessarily whole books that are talking about just Jesus Christ, but still parts of the Bible that speak about when Jesus was born. We have Mary's story actually, in Matthew, excuse me in Luke. We have Joseph's story about Jesus' birth in Matthew. We have John, the Apostle's story about Jesus' birth in the Gospel of John, which is really a Christmas carol. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way before. We have Isaiah in the Old Testament speaking about Jesus' birth, a prophetic story, and we also have an apocalyptic story. It's a fancy word for meaning the end times, a big analogy about the sweep of history. That's what apocalyptic means. And that's in Revelation chapter 12. But the question, really, I want us to think about this morning is: What was Jesus's story, and what was his emphasis, emphasis in his account of Christmas when he spoke about Christmas, about that first Christmas when he was born? What did he? What was he concerned about us knowing? You know, Mary's story—we all know that one, right? We have the angels coming to an angel coming to her and telling her what was going to happen. We have Mary visiting Elizabeth. We have the no room at the inn in Bethlehem. We have the shepherds and the angels that appeared to them. We got Joseph's story. We know that really well too, don't we? The story of Mary being found pregnant. And all the questions he had in his mind as to what had happened. And the angel appearing to hear him and telling him what was going to happen. The Magi coming. We have that Christmas carol in John chapter 1 where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on to say that the Word became flesh, that's Christmas, and dwelt amongst us. And it goes on to speak about what that Word was about Or the prophetic story of Isaiah where he speaks about the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Or the story in Revelation, the apocalyptic story about a red dragon that Satan represents Satan. And that dragon, Satan, seeking to destroy a woman who is Israel who gave birth to a son who is Jesus. Those are all biographical sketches of Jesus, of Christmas. But what is the autobiographical story? What does Jesus say of himself being born? What was his view of Christmas? Well, we find that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 18. And you're not going to see the scripture on up there on the board. So I want to make sure you all have a Bible. Anybody need a Bible so you can see what I'm talking about for yourself? If you need a a Bible, we have them here. Just uh, raise your hand, and we'll make sure you get one. Ooh, I like, oh, one, that's still pretty good, only, oh, one over here. Because I need for you to not only see this passage, but really live it, and eat it, and drink it, and know it this morning. So turn there to Hebrews. That's that's towards the end here. A little bit before Revelation. Not too many pages. It isn't super long. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 18. And I'm going to read it. But then I want you to keep following along as we talk about it and think about it. And keep your finger in it because all the way to the last sentence that I say, you're going to need to refer back to it, okay? So even if you flip over to other places, keep your finger here. Or put a piece of paper in there so you can get back to it real fast. Here's Jesus' autobiographical sketch. His view of Christmas, of his birth. It says there, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, that is, Jesus said this sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, that's Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, after say, for after saying This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He then adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now that sounds like a whole mouthful. Awful lot to think about, awful lot to dig through, kind of confusing sometimes it can feel like, but it's really very, very simple if you just try to grasp the basic things that Jesus is trying to get us us to get a hold of. For Jesus had at least three emphases here when he spoke about that first Christmas, when he spoke about that body that was made for him or prepared for him that little body that was laid in the manger. The first thing that he wants us to understand is that he came for a purpose. That's in verse 7. He came to do God's will. That was his purpose. He didn't come to look cute. Though if kids didn't look cute, we'd probably kill them sometimes, Wouldn't we? You know, a baby has two purposes in life when they're first born. To eat and to? It comes in one way, goes out the other. You're right. And I don't know about you, but when I have taken care of kids, I learned a long time ago, especially babies, that you don't wait to change diapers. Because I did once, when taking care of somebody's child, And when everything was running down the leg and out, and I had to finally wash up the whole kid in the bathtub, I learned I'm never going to wait again. He didn't come just to look cute. He didn't come just to tell us about God. There were all sorts of people that had come before that to tell us about God. There have been prophets sent before that. There had been angels sent before that. The words weren't what was so important. Because I don't know about you, somebody can say I love you and I'm not so sure that it's true, right? But if someone comes and does something like give their life for you, you know it's true. He came for a person, purpose. That purpose is easily lost in the sem- sentimentality of the baby in a manger, the awesomeness of the angels proclaiming to the shepherds the co- His coming, the majesty of the magi coming and presenting their gifts to Jesus. The thread of the purpose that Jesus had is interwoven in all the accounts. From unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, to he came to his own, and his own received him not. God's will is his focus, he wants us to know. No matter what it takes. No matter what it takes, we saw at the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, where Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Or in John chapter 4, verse 34, where Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food. His food was not just to hear God. Not just hear about God and enjoy that hearing and be drawn closer to God by that. But his food was to do that which he heard God's will to be. In Hebrews chapter 10... There's a contrast between the sacrifices that were required by the law of Moses and Christ's great and perfect sacrifice. God had given the laws. They were important to the world to know sin. But as it says here, the laws cannot save. Doing good things cannot save. Doing what's right cannot save us. We can never do enough to pay for the sins that we have committed because every good and perfect act that we do is nothing but what we should do at that moment in time. We can never get ahead of the game to pay back for what we've done. And so Christ had to come and die for us. He had to pay the price. And so it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 there, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. He takes away the, even the importance of the first law, the job of the first, which were the laws of Moses, the laws of God. He takes them away to establish the second because that job which the first did, which the laws of Moses did, now is going to be done by Jesus Christ himself. What I mean by that you'll see in a moment. He came for a purpose. But secondly, he knew he was the only perfect one to fulfill that purpose. It is written about me, it says there in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Not about Isaiah, not about Mary, not about Joseph. It is written about me, Jesus Christ. And so, when he said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he said something that the world and our old sinful natures do not want to accept that he's the only way. It's the hardest thing for humanity to swallow is the idea that there's only one way to God. Because the world says what? There's lots of ways. There's lots of ways to get to God, the world says. Just have to be good enough. Or find him through this religion or that religion or another religion or a philosophy or a life of good deeds. But there is no other way, the Bible says. Either burn the Bible and throw it away, or confront the fact that Jesus is the only way. That's what we have to do. And it's not easy to stand with that truth in a world that says there's many ways to God, when God says there's only one way. As many of you know, because you've already said, congratulations, you retired. Yeah, I just retired. Last Wednesday, had the retirement party and everything. I'm done. <laughs> no, I'm not done. We're only done when God says, you're done, let's come up to heaven. But I'm done with that phase. It's a whole nother phase. i got to find out what God has in mind now, what God has planned. I'm ready, I hope. I know God got me ready because he got me tired of being a chaplain even though I love being a chaplain in the hospital. And as a chaplain, one of the things that I come across over and over and over again is that I can talk with people about God in any way I want as long as I don't talk about Jesus being the only way. And when I talk about how it is that God leads me day by day, or God showed me this that He really wanted me to do, or I speak about my calling to be a minister in a lot of different situations and settings. People always would come back at me as from the perspective of, well, I don't know. You're that, I don't know God that way. Or that's not my theology, you know, as if it's okay, you can have your theology, but you know, let me have my theology. Don't confront me with Jesus being the only way is basically what they're saying without my ever having to say that Jesus is the only way. You know why? Because God is talking to them. And they don't want to listen. It's strange how you can get along with anybody as long as you don't confront that one issue or refer to that one issue. He knew he was the only perfect one to fulfill that purpose. But thirdly, he was more concerned with the doing of God's will than with the circumstances around God's will. When he talked about his birth, when he talked about that first Christmas, he didn't talk about angelic messengers. He didn't talk about the magi. He didn't talk about the shepherds. He didn't talk about glory to God in the highest that they had heard. He talked about obedience true obedience. The kind of obedience that in the Garden of Gethsemane caused him to be willing to do what God wanted him to do even if he didn't feel like it. In fact, he really didn't feel like it. He asked God that there'd be another way. And yet, not my will, but your will be done, he said. True obedience is not doing what God wants. Wait a second, what did he just say? True obedience is not doing what God wants, just what God wants. Because if you want to do what God wants, who's doing it? You're doing it because you want to. Not because God wants you to. Maybe it's a part of your history. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up from the age of eight when I accepted Christ as my Savior, seeking to know Jesus and believing in him. That's not everybody's experience. I grew up as a, quote, compliant child for the most part. though Melody says, my wife says, I'm passive aggressive. <laughs> you see, true obedience is what Jesus speaks about when he talks about that first Christmas. I have come to do your will, with the understanding of Gethsemane. True obedience is doing what God wants when we don't feel like it. For tr- obedience is a challenge. Obedience is not easy. Obedience is a choice that has to be made to be a choice for God because we have an old sinful nature within us that never wants to choose God's side. It only wants to pretend to be on God's side. So true obedience really begins at the moment that we realize that we are sinners and that we deserve death because of that. For the wages of sin is death, the Bible says, But the free gift of God is eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord, not through being Baptist, or going to church, but through Jesus Christ, the only way. And at that moment when I realize, that I need Jesus to save me from my sins. I take the first step of truly obeying. For the Bible calls every person, and I quote, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved as the Apostle Paul told the Philippian jailer. That's the command, the first command that needs to be obeyed. Because without that, it doesn't matter what we do, our sins are not forgiven. For all the benefits and all the good things that God brings into our lives and all the strength and the power and the ability to face the challenges of life that God gives to us after that, all of that pales. Ultimately, to that first act of obedience of accepting Christ as our Savior. Don't say that you're following God and you're believing in God if you haven't asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and come into your life. Because you haven't taken the first step of obedience without that. No matter how hard it is to, to consider no matter how hard it is to believe no matter how hard it is to to accept that reality that's what obedience is it's to say jesus i don't know necessarily how this all works how real you are but If you are really who you say you are in the Bible and you really say that I have to have you in my life and you have to forgive my sins, otherwise I can't really know you fully. So come into my life and prove yourself to me. I will trust you for that. You who are real, if you are real, guess what? He'll show you how real he really is. For it was when my dad when i was eight years of age and i was sitting so kind of in the center section in a small country church and the preacher up front asked people if they hadn't asked jesus christ into their life to do that right then in that moment my father turned to me and said don't you want to do that now and the interesting thing was he was expressing what i was feeling I just couldn't get myself out of that seat. I just couldn't embarrass myself by going up front until my dad leaned over and said that. And I discovered in life that that is the one issue that I have always struggled with the most and I think every Christian does more than anything else is leaning over to someone and saying don't you want to do that right now? Because God gives us the words. He's promised to give us the words to say when we're talking to somebody about Jesus. Even if we stumble over those words, those are the exact kind of words and the exact kind of way of stumbling that we need to do to help that person understand what it is that they need to do. So if Jesus is teaching us and giving us the words of what to say, what's our problem with saying it? We're scared of getting to that one point of saying, don't you want to do that right now? For the very first step of obedience to God is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. When Christmas is stripped of all its trappings, there remains only The desire of God's Son to do God's will in God's way, in God's time. And that led him to be born and laid in the manger. Wrapped in the same kind of cloth, swaddling cloths, that he would be wrapped in in his burial. The Greek word for swaddling clothes that we translate swaddling clothes is the same word that was used that what Jesus was buried in. How unlike we humans who want God to do our will, that is what we want, And if we want his will, we so often want it to be done in our way, how we would do it. Or if we desire to do his will in his way, we want it in our timing, right now, don't we? I think that's why I like the saying I like the saying that says you know God's never late but he sure misses a lot of opportunities to be early because I wish God would do things when I want to do when I think is best but Jesus came He came to do God's will in his way, die on the cross, in his time, God's time. As the Bible says, just at the right time, Christ died for our sins. You know, when the Apostle Paul thought about Jesus' birth, Oh, yeah, he thought about Christmas, too. When the Apostle Paul thought about Jesus' birth, he came to this conclusion, and that conclusion is given to us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Look at it. It's up on the screen. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which means hung on to, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, that's Christmas, and being found in human form, that's Christmas. He humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Doing God's will. In God's way. In God's time. The exciting thing about this reality, this obedience, is that we don't have to worry about what God's will is. We don't have to be concerned of, how am I going to know God's will? I just retired. What does God have in mind for me next? I don't know but I don't have to worry about it. You know why? Because what it says back there in Hebrews chapter 10, look what it says there. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, what does God promise to those who obey? In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, it says, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. God says he will write what his will is on our hearts and on our minds. He will put in our hearts and in our minds what he wants us to do. We don't have to worry about what is it. Our struggle isn't really with what is it, though we like to pretend that it is. Our struggle is in doing what it is. Even though God says here, he will not only write it on our minds, so we'll understand it, but he'll also write it where? In our hearts, so that we will want to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't want to do it. So, I want to give you a challenge this Christmas. I want to give you the challenge of spending time reading what God has placed on your heart and your mind. God says he's going to write it on our hearts and our minds. We just need to spend time reading it. How do you read what's on your mind and on your heart do i ask melody to look in my brain and take a look and tell me no do i ask her to kick me in the back in the seat of my pants to get me going no what it takes is spending time reflecting on what god has placed within your heart and within your mind When reading and studying the Christmas stories this year, don't just read them and remember what you've thought of before in the past. Reflect on that. Think about it. Sit with it. If I was in a farming community, I would say, chew your cud on it. Make sure that you're taking time to get away from the distractions of Christmas and reflecting on the obedience of Jesus Christ. For you see, ultimately, all the Christmas stories are all about that, actually. When the angel came to Mary and told her that she was going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit, what did she need to do? And she did. And it's recorded in what's called a Manifica. She obeyed God and let it be. When Joseph was told by the angel that he shouldn't be afraid to take Mary to be his wife because she was con- had conceived of the Holy Spirit, What did he need to do? Obey. What did the wise men need to do when they saw that star? Even though it didn't say across it, follow me. They knew. They could have said, oh, it's too too hard of a trip. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen when we get there. but they obeyed even the calling that God sent to them through that star. Or maybe for you this Christmas, it's the calling to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. reflect on Christ's obedience and ask yourself if all the trappings of Christmas were stripped away from you and your life, what would God find? Will our story of this Christmas focus on what we like to do or on God and what he would like us to do. That's the challenge of Christmas. Obedience.